Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Delbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online and be notified of future shows at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play. And download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Zoe Weil, co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education. She is a pioneer in the comprehensive humane education movement, which works to create a humane, peaceful, healthy, and just world for all people, animals, and the environment through education. Zoe is the author of Most Good, Least Harm, The Simple Principle for a Better World and a Meaningful Life, among several other books. Last year, Zoe debuted her one-woman show, My Ongoing Problems with Kindness, Confessions of a Mogo Girl, which we'll talk about briefly as well. And you can also find some of her work in several TEDx presentations online. On September 21st, Zoe will keynote, along with Dr. Jane Goodall and Arun Gandhi, the Educating for a Just, Peaceful, and Sustainable Future Humane Education Conference coming up in New York City on September 21st, which is the UN International Day of Peace. Zoe Weil, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, just a few weeks ago, we also got to speak with one of the graduates of your program at the Institute for Humane Education, Sean Sweeney, uh, about some of the topics we're going to talk about today, but I know you've got a lot of other pieces to uh, share with us as well. But as we did with Sean, if, if you can maybe... Tell us a little bit more about humane education as a topic. You know, in, on, on the one hand, it seems sort of a little obvious w- what those words mean, but on the other hand, it's probably a new concept to a lot of people. So can you sort of elaborate on, on what I shared in, in the introduction about that topic? Sure, sure. And actually, I'm glad you asked that basic question because I think that people don't know what humane education is. Some people think that it's associated solely with humane societies, and some people think that it's an adjective that describes education, meaning that it's kind education. And what's interesting is I called myself a humane educator for many years, and I hadn't looked the word humane up in the dictionary because we don't tend to look up words that we think we know. But when I looked the word humane up, one of the definitions was having what are considered the best qualities of human beings. And so in the very broadest sense, humane education is designed to help people identify for themselves the best qualities of human beings and then live according to those best qualities in our complex globalized world. And I say our complex globalized world because we all know what it means to be honest, we all know what it means to be kind, we all know what it means to have integrity, but what do those words mean in a world in which the foods we eat, the products we buy, the electronics we use, the clothes we wear, come to us through a web of connections and have many effects on other people, on the environment, on other species, what does it mean to actually live with integrity and kindness, or humanely, in such a world as ours today? So humane education will explore with students in age-appropriate ways issues of human rights and environmental preservation and animal protection and culture and media, all designed to enable people to become aware of the effects of their choices as both individuals and in their personal choices and as citizens and potential 
change makers in the world to ensure that the systems in our world are healthy and just and sustainable and humane. And, and the Institute, as we said at the beginning, uh, offers uh, credit programs, a master's, and I, if I'm recalling correctly, soon to be a PhD program in humane education. And, and Sean told us a little bit about his own experience, but say a little more about how that program works, because I know, as uh, we had said earlier, that it, it, it's a different uh, style of, of graduate program. It's not in residence, and, and for people, I presume, uh, many of our listeners who are creative learners that might be looking for a different kind of program, your, yours is one of those. So what is different about it, and, and what, do, what do students do in that program? Sure. Well, first I'd just say that I was a humane educator for many, many years teaching about these issues and realized that this kind of education was not incorporated in a, in a general way into the curriculum of most educational institutions. And so that was part of why I co-founded the Institute in 1996, was to train people and to provide them with the education they needed to be humane educators. So I created the first Humane Education Certificate Program, and then that became a master's degree program. And now we have five master's degree programs offered through an affiliation with Valparaiso University online, as you said, with a week-required uh, residency experience at our beautiful institute on the coast of Maine. And students in our graduate programs, and, and yes, we are about to launch a PhD program too, also the first of its kind, Students in our programs learn about issues of human rights and environmental protection, animal protection, and culture and change making, and also education and educational pedagogies in order to be humane educators in whatever setting and in whatever way they choose. So we have students and graduates who are kindergarten teachers and college professors and everything in between, in addition to being writers and artists and filmmakers, and all sorts of, of ways of manifesting humane education because we can educate in many, many different venues in many different settings, traditional and non-traditional. So many people are drawn to us and to our program because they're concerned about problems in the world. They want to solve problems, and they, they know, as, as we believe, that education is a root solution to all of our problems. And if we give people accurate information and we give them the tools they need to be problem solvers and we ignite their reverence, respect, and responsibility and their creativity and critical thinking skills, that they will be able, through whatever careers they pursue, to solve problems and to create more just and sustainable systems. So humane educators give people those tools and we train people how to do that. So, though, um, one of the things that I've uh, seen in my work is with students is that often making choices is diff difficult for students, and um, sometimes parents are pressing their own needs onto their kids, and it manifests into their, you know, the way that they make choices or don't make choices or the difficulties there. And so I wonder about ways that uh, through humane education we can all, no matter what our age, make better positive choices 
And I also noticed along, you know, side that is that you, in the book you wrote, Above All Be Kind, you wrote about different attributes of humane living. And one of those is playfulness and humor. So I know we live in an age of information overload, and you just named off all kinds of really important but serious and maybe even daunting things for some people to consider. So um, put all that together. How do we, as human beings, and no matter what our age, make better choices in our lives for for a kinder, better world? And bring play and bring play and imagination and lighten it up a bit as well as we learn and as we learn critical thinking. Well, that that's a big question, a really good question, and I don't think that there's any simple answer to it. I mean, making choices that really do the most good and the least harm um, can be challenging in our complex world when we just don't even have the vaguest idea about the effects of our most basic everyday choices, you know, what we eat and what we wear. And um, So it's a challenge, but I think that it's a challenge that is exciting and often fun. And I know that that may sound crazy, but the reason why I think it's fun is because learning is fun. And being a lifelong learner is so deeply rewarding. I mean, I think most people, if they think about times in their life when they felt really alive, really um, enthusiastic and excited, there probably was an element of learning involved in that. I think it's why people like to travel so much and explore new places. It's why people love to read. And I think that the process of learning, even about challenging issues, even about problems in the world, frees us to make choices that are more deeply aligned with our values. And so I think that just going on that journey of learning is in itself a rewarding thing to do. In terms of play, I'm one of those people who loves Play. In fact, improvisational comedy is one of my very favorite things to do, and I do it regularly. And I think that um, the the two the two may not be synonymous or go hand in hand all the time, but I do think that when we expose ourselves to some of the grave problems in the world and some of the grave challenges of our time, we do need to lighten it up. And so, for me, play is a big part of being a happy person. And the last thing that I would say is that when I was writing the book, Most Good, Least Harm, one of the keys to making choices that do the most good and the least harm, I thought one of the keys was being a joyful person. And the reason why I say that is because I have been in activist communities for my entire adult life, and what I often find in among groups of activists, myself included, is a lot of anger and sorrow and despair. Because if you're trying to change injustices and cruelties in the world, it means that you're exposing yourself to them, often more than other people are exposing themselves. So that can bring up a lot of anger and a lot of despair. And I, I became very aware of the fact that Nobody would want to join a club of angry and despairing people. This is not where you want to spend your time. So 
there is a danger that as people who are trying to create change expose themselves to more atrocities in the world, more problems in the world, that they would become even more despairing and then push other people away and so not build this great club of making the world better. And so I realized that pursuing joy was one of the most important ingredients to ultimately leading a life that does the most good and the least harm. I also thought that being of service in general was one of those keys to making choices like that. So I I ended up uh, doing a, a rather unscientific survey uh, asking hundreds of people, what brings you joy? I was curious what people would say brought them joy. And the things that brought people joy were things that you would expect, being out in nature, being with loved ones, being with children, being with animals. Those things people mentioned repeatedly. But they also mentioned something else that really surprised me. People wrote over and over again how being of service brought them joy. And so I realized that these things that I had perceived as two keys – being joyful and being of service was actually one. To pursue joy through service was one of the greatest keys to creating a better world and to leading a meaningful life. One of the things that you talk about and and I think teach for is uh, how to become a solutionary, which I think is such a great connection to applying creativity in education and sort of framing it under that umbrella of becoming a solutionary or being a solutionary. What is that? And and for people that might be working with young adults or adults in a classroom setting, what kind of specific things might they do to help other people become solutionaries? Well, the term uh, was coined by a uh, uh, our former executive director, Khalif Williams, and I loved the term so much, and I have been using it ever since because I think that it encapsulates this idea of what modern education should be for, that really if we could graduate a generation of solutionaries, people who had the knowledge and had the motivation and had the critical and creative thinking capacities to solve the problems we face, how great would that be? That means that those kids would go out into the world and no matter what paths they pursued, they would perceive themselves as solutionaries and that they would understand that it was their role to ensure that the systems within their chosen professions were sustainable and humane and just. And so how do you go about graduating a generation of solutionaries? Well, one of the key ingredients in that is thinking about educating as a path toward providing creative and critical thinking skills and collaborative skills to students. So not rote memorization, not being able to just spit out answers on a multiple choice test, not being able to be proficient just at debating either or uh, of a fabricated scenario, which is what our debate teams do all the time, but actually working to come up with solutions to whatever vexing issues that we face. And those could be issues in the, the school that the student is learning in or in their community or in their state or the nation or global issues. So 
what could listeners who are educators in some capacity do? They could bring whatever those pressing issues are, and instead of debating them, instead of thinking in terms of black and white, in terms of uh, red state, blue state, and liberal and conservative, and all of these either-ors that we normally use, instead of thinking that way, they invite their students to really look at the complexity of challenges and come up with ideas. And, you know, this is what engineers do. This is what designers do. These are, these, these are basically the bread and butter of many, many professions. So why aren't our students learning this as a matter of course? And this is something that humane education seeks to do and, in, and brings into the curricula in really exciting and innovative ways. What, so what do we do? I mentioned about information overload, and so part of that information overload that we all are experiencing is from the media and from advertising, and you write about that as well. I was wondering then what do we, what do, we do with all that? How do we um, move beyond pass through that all that media bombardment? And I'm particularly thinking of, well, there's, of course, all the things happening in our world, but right now there's a um, threat of, of war with Syria. That's certainly on my mind. In fact, I had to stand up here to talk. <laughs> so everything's coming in as we're talking. And that, you know, gee, there's all these uh, ways to learn and to uh, move towards solutions and come up with ideas and do playful action to move things forward. So how do we go beyond, though, all that? Because the media just really um, overloads us on a daily basis. You're right. And um, youth are being overloaded at a younger and younger age all the time. And I'm I'm seeing um, some creeping cynicism and hopelessness um, among younger and younger students. You know, it used to be that I would see high schoolers have a somewhat apathetic or, or, or cynical attitude, and now I'm seeing that in middle schoolers and even younger, and that's really a concern to me. So I think that the answer to that is complex because on the one hand, this access to information is going to help us to actually and help them to actually solve problems. And the key is how can we carefully use, choose, and scrutinize information and not let it simply bombard us, but have some agency over the information that we seek out and that we use. And again, this is where humane education can be a not only a corrective, but really a bomb for students because what happens with a skilled humane educator, whether in a classroom or whether at a camp setting or any number of educational settings, is that they will help to ensure that students have access to really useful information, a variety of sources of information, and then the critical thinking skills to analyze it with the purpose of coming up with solutions. So one of the problems with the media overload is it's, it's not solution-focused. And youth need to have that solution focus in order to feel like they can be active agents of change. 
And when you feel like you're an agent of change, when you feel like you have the power to make a difference, then information is useful to you because it helps you to achieve that. When you feel that you are a victim or at the whim of all of this information and you just have to be a, um, you know, come down on, on a side or you have to have an opinion but not necessarily agency, then you begin to feel powerless. And so as as educators, humane educators, work with youth, again, in age-appropriate ways, they can help them to be agents. So whether that agency is as simple as setting up a recycling and composting system in their school or it's as complex as, you know, being part of a solutionary team that attends the Solutionary Congress, and this is now happening, by the way, and those students are addressing uh, the energy crisis, they can still feel that sense of empowerment because they've worked to think of themselves as problem solvers and come up with viable solutions. And it seems to me that curiosity and witnessing or observing the world is crucial in this. I'm thinking of, you know, definitely I advise people to go to the the Institute for Humane Education sites because there's just lots of um, activities and ways to do just what you're saying, to, to participate and create change. But um, one of the things that I like to do, and I wasn't calling this uh, what is it's called seat and watching, but I've been doing this for years, just watching a particular small patch of the a place that I'm at and going back to that same place and seeing what happens and, um, you know, what's going on in that world. And I, I think those kind of things are really valuable for um, as part of the process you're talking about too. Absolutely. And, you know, Seton watching um, comes from the naturalist John Seton and, and it really it's just looking in a small window and observing, as you say. And there are lots of reverence-building activities that we have on our website, which is humaneeducation.org. And we have loads of free resources that people can download and use. And many of these reverence-building and wonder-inducing activities, are the, the, the purpose of them is to awaken that sense of awe and appreciation for the natural world, for other animals, for other people, because we tend to protect and care for who and what we love. So if we love this extraordinary, amazing, beautiful world, we're going to be more inclined to protect it. So particularly in the young years, nurturing children with these these reverence-building experiences will pave the way for their solutionary thinking later. And it, it also just allows creative thinking if we, if we sit with the mystery of what's around us and observe. So coming up, as we said uh, at the beginning, uh, on September 21st in New York City is a humane education conference that you're part of both health organizing as well as keynoting along with um, Dr. Jane Goodall and Arun Gandhi. I know that this uh, will be a, a great place for people that might be looking for a little more in-depth um, exposure to what humane education is about in a, in a one-day workshop conference setting, um, as well as, uh, again, the work we've been talking about that you do through the Institute. Can you say more about the conference and, and what people will find there and what kinds of things are happening, who should come to it? Sure, and 
Steve, you're speaking at it too, which I'm so excited about. So I am. I'm very glad to be part of it with with Sean. Yay! Yay! Um, the conference is really exciting to us. Um, we wanted to, we're working with two other organizations, uh, Heart in New York City and Roots and Shoots, the Jane Goodall Institute, in order to bring these, this, this concept of creating a humane and sustainable and just and peaceful future through education to a wider audience. And we initially booked a room uh, at New York University for 250 people. We sold out by our early registration deadline and had to secure a bigger room. So now we have a bigger room. We only have about 50 tickets left, so people who are interested should get them um, because we are going to sell out again. And people will not only um, get to hear you know, such luminaries as, as Dr. Jane Goodall and Arun Gandhi, uh, but also be able to go to workshops like yours about bringing humane education into the community and bringing humane education to elementary students, to high school students, um, doing humane education as service learning and learning about teaching about animal issues and environmental issues. We're going to have youth speaking about the impact humane education has had on them and about what they really want out of their education. We're going to have media literacy. We're going to have a lightning session with very short presentations from people around the world who are bringing humane education in communities in China and in uh, Hong Kong and all over in Australia and, and on global trips. And it's really, really exciting conference. And as I said, we only have a few seats left. Well, Zoe, what, what would you suggest uh, in the uh, next few minutes before we end our time together for parents and grandparents who want to be um, mentors for their children and grandchildren and make this world a kinder, better world, more humane world? Well, that's a great question, and I actually wrote a book for parents called Above All, Be Kind, Raising a Humane Child in Challenging Times, and they really are challenging times for, for raising children in this way. They're also very hopeful times because never before have we had the capacity to instantaneously communicate and collaborate with people across the globe to solve our challenges. So what can parents and grandparents do they can nurture that reverence with their young children and grandchildren, get them outdoors, get them to fall in love with this beautiful world, share stories with them that are timeless about heroic figures and about those who are trying to make a difference in the world, and help be a mentor and a guide in the process of making more humane choices. I mean, parents and grandparents can go on the journey too. It's not easy as... I mentioned at the very beginning, and if parents and grandparents willingly say, let's go on this journey together, let's make humane choices together, let's try and solve problems together, that is just so fulfilling and rewarding for, for the kids, for the parents and grandparents, for their relationships, and for the world that they are co-creating. And I know that's how you started your journey was with your own son, is that right? Well, I had been a humane educator for many years before I had my son, and then the real challenge was, okay, can I bring these concepts of humane education into my parenting? And actually, 
This was rather rewarding. Last um, winter, my son was a freshman in college, and um, he went above and beyond in a in a very terrible situation that had happened to a friend of his, a very unjust situation, and um, you know, going to the deans of the school and really trying to make a difference. And he'd he'd taken a course um, freshman first semester in women's studies that I thought had had an impact on him that had made him sort of stand up for this this woman in a, in a profound way. And I said, well, that course, you know, must have made a difference. He said, oh, Mom, that course wasn't it. He said, you've been teaching me this since I was born. So that was rewarding to know that something that I'd done as a humane educator sort of sunk in. I was really proud of him that um, he was, He'd sort of uh, absorbed some of what I tried to do, <laughs> probably uh, <to> me, <laughs> rather than because of me. So remind us again of uh, how people can find more information about the Institute and your work and all of the great things coming up that are opportunities uh, for people to engage with humane education. Well, they can go to our website, humaneeducation.org, and they'll find a link there also to the conference that we were just uh, talking about, and they'll find loads of free downloadable resources. They'll find information about our graduate programs. We also have online courses and workshops, and if people want me to come to their community to perform my one-woman show, which is fun, and funny and brings humane education issues in a more entertaining format, they can contact me through the website as well. Well, thank you very much, Zoelle, for joining us on Creativity and Play today. Zoelle is co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education and will be keynoting the Humane Education Conference in New York City on the UN International Day of Peace, September 21st, along with Dr. Jane Goodall and Arun Gandhi. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Keyes. You can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests at creativityandplay.com. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Galbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Zoe, and thank you for all the work that you do for others. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.